and welcome to Radio Skullvera, anything and everything by SMC. This is Susie Nolan. Everyone in this programme is a transition year student and we're all delighted to be involved. We have an exciting show ahead with my co-presenters and classmates. We'll hear from horse rider Jill, who has travelled the world horseback with her best friend Patch. We will also hear from our own agony aunt Alison, who gives the best relationship advice. And we will also be joined by a special guest in studio. So to kickstart the show, we have Jane and why we should keep smiling during the pandemic. A smile is a curve that sets everything straight. Hello, my name is Jane and this is Anything and Everything with SMC. Today I'll tell you why you should continue smiling through the pandemic. A smile is the most recognised facial expression all over the world and is used to express happiness everywhere from the most remote tribes to even Patrick Street. It can cross borders with no need for translation, and unlike bows, handshakes and hugs that have different meanings across cultures, a smile everywhere is just a symbol of happiness. But why does everyone smile? Smiling actually has lots of health benefits. It reduces stress, acts as a natural painkiller, and even boosts your immune system. This would be a good thing if you were to catch the flu although a smile is even more contagious than that. A smile is able to be seen from over 300 feet away, and good thing it is, because a smile actually makes you look younger. Would you believe that children smile on average 400 times a day, compared to the 20 times an adult smiles? A genuine smile also benefits you socially, because it makes you more approachable and makes people more comfortable engaging in a conversation. Smiling helps you in professional situations too, Studies show people in leadership positions favour their employees who smile regularly. Therefore, it's not wrong to say if you're not using your smile, you're like a man with a million in the bank and no checkbook. But what if the banks are closed and you can't access your millions? Well, that is what mask wearing has done to smiling. How can you reap the same rewards and gain the same social profit if your million dollar smile can't be seen? We gaze at strangers' faces to gauge their intentions, so when the nose, mouth and chin disappear behind a covering, many clues vanish with them. This is particularly true for our doctors and nurses. Positive non-verbal communication has been shown to decrease patient anxiety and give better outcomes. A recent study done by the University of Wisconsin of 719 patients with the common cold found that the more empathetic they perceived their doctor to be, the faster they recovered. Those who rated their doctors to have high empathy had reduced severity of symptoms and recovered faster. Speaking to Irish healthcare workers, they said, The pandemic has definitely been a challenge, probably the hardest being unable to use your smile or laughter to comfort people and make them feel more at ease. We've all become more resourceful to show our emotions during the pandemic. Healthcare workers have used smiley faces on their gowns to convey a sense of friendliness to patients. Thankfully, most of us were able to continue to smile on Zoom calls, even if we couldn't meet in person. This sure made online learning easier for all of us. So, should I really bother smiling at the bus driver? If I'm wearing a mask? The neighbour? A friend I pass in the street? If it can't be seen? Can I still put others at ease with a smile? The answer is yes, 100%. There is only one smile that expresses genuine happiness and joy. It's called the Duchenne smile. And unlike all other smiles, it's obvious to others, even if you're wearing a mask. The Duchenne smile is seen in the crow's feet or laugh line areas of the face. An ingenuine smile has none of these features. So, while we've all had to adapt, our smiles continue to shine through. It's maybe hard to believe that if we were to really think about it, 
mask wearing has had no effect on how we truly express happiness and we should most definitely continue smiling through the pandemic. Thanks Jane, that was fantastic. And don't forget to keep smiling as it is just as contagious as COVID. Up next we have Ashlyn talking about music through the decades. Hello and welcome to Anything and Everything, the podcast from T.Y. Skullvare Cork. I am Ashling Barrett. For the next few minutes or so, I'll be taking you through almost a century of modern music and how it evolved. In the 1940s, the most popular music was swing, designed for dancing and played by big bands with 20 or more musicians. Some of the big bands were Benny Goodman, Tommy Dorsey and of course Glenn Miller, who had more hits than Elvis Presley or the Beatles. Here is a sample of the Miller style. With so many men fighting in World War II, singers helped them to remember home. Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby were just two. The 1950s brought rock and roll and who can forget this? Kids bought vinyl records to listen to Elvis, Chuck Berry and Buddy Holly. Like jazz in the 40s, it was also present in the 50s, but it was transforming. It was brought out of the cities and into jazz festivals. The 1960s. Some of you may have heard about the likes of the Beatles, the Rolling Stones and Bob Dylan. These were very popular artists in the 60s. Rock and roll continued to grow with songs like this. The Beatles has got to be one of the most well-known bands from the 60s. The 1970s is known for its disco, funk, smooth jazz, jazz fusion and soul music, though rock and roll still remained popular. Although the 70s were about 50 years ago, the music still lives on from the likes of David Bowie to Led Zeppelin to Saturday Night Fever. You may have heard about ABBA, who were a Swedish pop band. They had hits in the 70s and early 80s like this. which remained popular as a huge amount of ABBA songs were involved in the movie Mamma Mia, which is an extremely popular and well-known movie in the 21st century. You might recognise the 80s for its big hair and extravagant outfits, but there's more to this decade than that. The 1980s was the beginning of a lot new genres of music, such as hip-hop and new wave music. You may have come across Whitney Houston, Prince and Queen. I Wanna Dance With Somebody is one of the most famous songs from the 1980s, with the even winning Grammys and American Music Awards. The 1990s was known for its alternative rock and hip-hop music. There were lots of bands in the 90s, such as Nirvana, Spice Girls and Oasis. Their songs are still played regularly to this day, such as this. If you wanna be my lover, you gotta get with my friends, make it last forever, friendship never the Spice Girls have got to be one of the biggest girl bands of all time due to their songs like Wannabe or Stop. 
The 2000s is famous for its R&B, although alternative rock was still really popular. Some of the most famous musicians from this decade were Beyonce, Eminem, Madonna and Britney Spears. And lastly, my favourite decade of all, 2010 until now. Music from 2010 up until now is extremely well known, with artists such as Katy Perry, Rihanna and Adele. Pop has got to be the most famous genre of music, with tons of songs being written, just like this one. That's the latest in music, with me, Ashling. Back to you, Susie. Casey's Furniture. Looking after all your furnishing needs for 100 years. Why don't you visit us in our locations, Cork, Limerick, or online at caseys.ie. Thanks for that, Ashling. but if I really had to pick my favourite artist or singer, it would definitely be Adele. Next, we will have Isabel, Roisin and Robin interviewing the fabulous and talented Maeve Catalan and why women quit sports at a young age. Did you know that by the age of 14, one out of three girls will have quit sports? My name is Robin Cairn and here is my presentation on why girls drop out of sport. Pressures of life in teenage years is difficult enough. And in today's world, with heightened stresses and anxieties regarding looks, how well we do in school and our prospects for the future are taking over our lives. There are not as many options to turn professional as there would be for, say, male athletes. For example, the Irish women's hockey team have other jobs to provide an income while engaging in sport. The pay gap between male and female sports stars is staggering. The highest paid female soccer player, Carly Lloyd, earns $518,000 a year while the highest paid male soccer player, Lionel Messi, earns $1,325,000 just in one week, which is around $69 million a year. By the age of 13 to 15, many girls have labelled themselves as not sporty and are living by this label, with few attempts to counter it. The most powerful barrier that prevents inactive girls from taking part in sport and physical activity is not feeling good enough to join in. Various sports studies show that there aren't enough opportunities for girls to take part in sport and have carefree fun with friends while being active. Traditionally, women would only do so for leisure and must at all times retain decorum. As a result, men have had hundreds of years of a head start in mastering and monopolising the industry, leading to little space for women to make an impact. It is also very common in mixed schools that priority is given to male teams, who typically gain more supporters and more funding from the school. On a familial level, it historically was very rare for a family to sit down and watch the Saturday night women's game, or the women's Six Nations, if they could even find coverage of them. Educationally, girls are receiving an entire set of messages which do not include women in sport, thus failing to help young girls acclimatise to the normality of women participating in sport. Finally, without further ado... We have a very special guest on our podcast today to talk about this message further. It's Cork Camogie star Maeve Cahalan, who's joined by my co-hosts Isabel and Roisin. 
So over to you. Thanks, Robin. I'm Isabel Martin. And I'm Roisin Roach. And joining us is a GAA star who's outstanding at both codes, hurling and football. Maeve Callan, welcome to the SMC podcast. Thanks for having me, girls. We are looking at dropout rates in young girls in sport. How have you combined your work as a busy accountant with being a sporting superstar? I suppose from a young age, like I've been trying to balance, I suppose, studies and going to college and then you have your sport on top of that. So when you start work, it kind of it kind of works out itself. Um, obviously, then you'd have busy times of the year with work and um, exams. I was doing exams up until last August. Um, but I find just for me personally, even through, let's say, leaving cert, college exams, um, accounting exams and now work, I find sport um, is a great escape. Um, I really look forward to um, going to training each evening that um, day, you know, at work. I, I don't mind working until until um, half five or whatever because I know that evening I'm, I'm looking forward to going to training. Um, so I do think, you know, it kind of works out itself and it just makes forward to training that bit more. Obviously, it can be difficult at times and like you have to make sacrifices in time in terms of maybe you might be able to hang out with your friends in the evening because you've training and you had work that day. But they're just the, the sacrifices you make and kind of just it kind of just works itself out, really, um, once you get used to it. Why are so many young girls quitting sport at such a young age? Surely it's not lack of interest. Um, I don't think it's lack of interest. And I think as well, when I started out playing camogie and football and even when I was younger, I would have done other sports. I would have even done a bit of Irish dancing and things like that. I think in a way, sport is more popular for like young girls now in school. Um, before, maybe it might have been a bit more for boys in primary school and stuff to do hurling and football and soccer or whatever sport it may be. But I definitely do think um, in younger girls, especially in primary school, you know, it's getting more popular. Um girls get to secondary school and they hit maybe 16, 17 and start going to parties and maybe training is clashing with them. You know, I find sometimes girls give up at that age and maybe then they get to kind of 20, 21 and they kind of regret giving up and they kind of go back then again, but they might have missed out on maybe like four or five years training. So, you know, it's it's not a bad thing if if girls don't have any interest to give up, but I definitely think you know, I don't think girls giving up is is a lack of interest. I think maybe it's other activities that maybe they think is clashing with their training or matches. And it's just trying to get that balance right at that age, I suppose. Professor Niall Moyna from the School of Health and Human Performances, DCU, said that girls not being physically active is a serious problem that will affect them later in life. What would you say to the young girls now about the importance of sport? I would think... Having training and having your sport, you never really have to think about your fitness. Um, you know, you never have to be really like conscious of, you know, going out for a run, having to go to the gym. Um, because you're you have trained that evening and you know, you're keeping your fitness up that way. And I feel like as well, kind of nutrition and looking after like your body in terms of like sleep, um, hydration, nutrition, all those things, they kind of they kind of go hand in hand with your training and your sport. So it could be kind of a knock on effect of all those things that, you know, you do have to be conscious of them when when you're involved in sport and you're playing at a high level because each, like, you know, small margins might make all the difference in terms of like, your sleep, making sure that you're properly recovered. 
Um, so I suppose then when you go on later on in life, it obviously has benefits for for girls who would have been playing sport and involved in sport. Um, and I also just find that, you know, I went on a year abroad there when I was in college. I think I was in third year and I went to Strasbourg for um, an Erasmus. And I just found that year I wasn't tra- like I wasn't training for whatever I was there for nine months. And I had to be really conscious of like, you know, I'm going to go for a walk this evening. I'm going to go for a run. I'm going to go to the gym like whatever day. Whereas like when you're involved in sport, I feel like that's kind of all scheduled. out, So you, so you don't really have to plan your exercise and, and your fitness. So it definitely will benefit you later on in life being active and, you know, being involved in sport. We could not believe that you played two National League semi-finals in 26 hours. How did you do it? I think when we got the fixtures, we were a bit annoyed because obviously it's it's hard to you know play at that level within the space of a few hours. Um, but you know that that kind of does happen when you play both camogie and football. I suppose the game against Donegal was um, above in Galway, so it just meant like the minute I came out of the dressing room. I just needed to, you know, make sure I rehydrated, you know, ate properly, went to bed early, got up the next day, made sure I had enough breakfast and, you know, we were hydrated enough that the minute the football game was over, you're just thinking about the camogie game. It's obviously not ideal in terms of recovery to be, you know, playing games that close together. But I do think at times your body gets used to it maybe when you're you're doing it at club level anyway. It's just being conscious of your recovery. And then if you're carrying any injury or anything like that, you know, it's just being conscious of that because it's obviously not smart to play two games within the space of that many hours um, if you are carrying an injury. So, you know, just making sure you're 100% fit and 100% recovered. And um, that's the main thing to doing that. But hopefully we won't have too many cases of that, of that this year where we just play two games within the space of, of that time frame. Hopefully not, yeah. Yeah, please God. <laughs> How did you cope with the loss to Galway in the 2021 on Island Camogie final? Like, I suppose after the game, you're initially so disappointed and you'd be thinking about the game a lot. Like, but a couple of days after after the game and, like, you wouldn't want to, you know, you wouldn't want to analyse it too much or talk about it to other people. But, you know, like, I did feel like we, we prepared the best we could as a group for that game and like I don't think we could have prepared any better um you know we we had a great win over Kilkenny in the semi-final and I don't think we let anything short in terms of preparation so like you wouldn't be disappointed with that side of things obviously then you know the game it didn't really work out for us in the end we got a goal and I think things kind of went against us after we got the goal you know Galway really brought themselves back into the game they got a few frees that they tapped over and then towards the end they definitely were the better team they really stuck to their game plan and you know you have to you have to look at them as well and and see like you know how can we get to their level next year and I suppose it takes a couple of weeks to to start thinking like that but you know already you'd be thinking like you know how can I better myself this year like how as a group better ourselves this year and put ourselves into a position you know where Maybe it'll be Galway, like maybe it'll be Kilkenny. It could be another team, but where we can hopefully, you know, get to a final again next year and and maybe win it. But, you know, you can only think about, I suppose, the league now at this stage. And that would be probably our first aim to try and like win that and try and get the best out of ourselves in that. So obviously initially after all our finals, after losing them, you'd be so disappointed. 
but there's a reason that you might have lost and like the better team always wins so you always have to be looking to improve yourself and improve as a group so I think that's what we'll be um, concentrating on this year. Maeve, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here on Zoom. Um, We really appreciate it and we wish you every success in the future in hurling football and your career. Thanks, girls, and hopefully we might cross paths in some shape or form um, again. But best of luck with your podcast and best of luck with the rest of your year. Thank you. Thanks for that, girls. And now I'm going to pass it on to Isabel, who is going to give us a brief update on Karen Weeks. Karen Weeks is aiming to be the first Irish female to row solo, 3,000 miles across the Atlantic Ocean. She will begin her journey from the Canaries in December and arrive to Barbados after 70 days of non-stop rowing. We will provide updates on her incredible adventure. If you would like to check her out, visit the hashtag SheCanDo2021 website for more information. Thanks for that, Isabel. And now on Anything and Everything, we will hear from Alison, our own agony aunt, who's here to answer your questions and give the best advice possible. Hello everyone, it's Alison, and today you're going to be asking Alison on Anything and Everything with SMC. In this part of the podcast, I'm going to be answering and giving advice on the questions you've all sent in. I hope that if you've asked a question, or even if you didn't, that I'm helpful in any way. So, let's get into the questions. The first question we have is, how to reject someone kindly? Now, this is definitely a difficult one, but honesty is key when it comes to rejecting someone. You will be hurting someone's feelings, so it's best just to be straightforward. Also, don't lead anyone on just because you feel bad, and don't keep making up excuses and putting off doing it, because... The longer it goes on, the harder it's going to be for you and for the other person. It's definitely an awkward one, but it's best just to get it over with. This person writes in, Hi, my boyfriend just broke up with me because I've decided to stop getting blonde highlights. He says he's only into blondes. What do I do? I really like this question and the answer is very simple. If your hair is falling out, please, please stop getting your hair dyed and think about hair treatment. If your boyfriend's make or break with you is the colour of your hair, then that is a massive warning sign and I think that should be pretty obvious to you. If he's only into blondes and that's his main priority, then it isn't worth it. It says a lot more about his character than it does about yours. So break up with him and do a hair mask. Now over to the next question. My boyfriend says I'm not spending enough time with him and suggested dropping out of school to make more time to see him. He said his granny can homeschool me, but I think I'll miss my friends in school. Can you help? Well, it was nice that your boyfriend wanted to spend more time with you and offered his granny to be your teacher, but I think dropping out of school is a bit drastic. Instead, I would stay in school and try and work around both of your schedules. If you do that, you'll definitely be able to find time to spend together. If you really like someone, which I presume you do, you'll make an effort to see them and spend time with them. Don't worry too much about it. This person says, Hi, I've had the same best friend for 10 years and we get on so well. There's no one I'm closer to, but two months ago I found out she was dating my brother and I haven't spoken to her since. I do miss her a lot, but I don't feel comfortable with them together. Well... I really do feel for everyone involved in the situation and it definitely can't be easy for anyone. No one is necessarily wrong, but you might feel like you're losing your best friend, which is hard enough, but when it's your own brother, it's very difficult. My advice to you would be to just talk to her and tell her why you're feeling like this and why you miss her, but you are uncomfortable with the situation. Although, if you want to still be friends with her, you can't make her choose between you and her boyfriend. In my opinion, that would be unfair and honestly, she might just choose her boyfriend, so that doesn't work for anyone. 
Instead, if you can, slowly start to be around them when they're together and little by little, you might just get used to it. When you hang out with your friend, make sure it's just the two of you and that you set boundaries with your brother. I hope everything goes well for you. This person writes in, My boyfriend has always been taller than me, but recently I had a growth spurt and now it's the other way around. I'm not sure if I care, but my friends think it's a big deal and that I should break up with him. Help, please? Hey, the height difference was probably hard to adjust to at the start, but if you really care about your boyfriend, the height won't matter and you should stop letting your friends influence you because it's your relationship and your decision. You also might feel like this is a deal breaker for your relationship and if it is, just break up with him and don't make him feel too bad about his height because at the end of the day, can't do anything about it. If you do decide to end it, I really don't think the relationship would have worked anyway. Well, that's all we have time for today. You asked Alison and I answered. I hope you enjoyed my section of this podcast and found something helpful in any way. I really enjoyed answering your questions and if you would like to be featured in another podcast, please follow our Instagram at smc.podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Talk soon. This podcast is kindly sponsored by Audi Cork, your number one Audi dealer in Ireland. Located on the Bandon Road roundabout, discover the 212 Audi range at audicork.ie. Thanks for that, Alison. You make really good points and thanks for helping the girls out. Coming up, we have a competitive horse rider, Jill, who has travelled the world horseback with her best friend. Hello, welcome to Anything and Everything, and this is Jill Casey. Today, I'm going to explain the magic of the equestrian sport, eventing. Eventing has been a levelling experience for me and has had its fair share of ups and downs. Character building, as my coach likes to call it. Show jumping, eventing and dressage are quite popular sports in Ireland, yet some wouldn't be able to distinguish one from the other. Many people my age that are in the youth high-performance programmes go on and make a career out of this sport. For example, Cahal Daniels, the 2021 Olympian, was on the Irish team for ponies, juniors and young riders. This year, I was in the pony high-performance programme and all the coaches and managers were from all over the country, some from Armagh to Tipperary. This year has been a weird and wonderful year. I think some people underestimate how dangerous the sport can be for even people my age. For the cross-country element, you are travelling at over 500 metres per minute at solid fences, which are 110 metres high. At international events, when on return from the cross-country, the horse's heart rate will be taken to make sure the animal is fit enough. Drug testing. From personal experience, this can be very nerve-wracking, even if one is sure the horse hasn't had any banned substances. The process includes bringing the animal to a doping room where they will take six tubes of blood to look for NSAIDs, steroids and bronchilators, then wait for the horse to urinate and they take a sample. This is a very intricate process as things such as pseudocreme and citronella are banned substances. If caught using banned substances, one can be suspended or even banned from competition. Kean O'Connor at the 2004 Olympics, where he appeared to have won the gold medal, but he and his horse were disqualified for a positive test on the horse. In 2012, he returned to the Olympics to help Ireland win a team jumping bronze medal. This is a very common occurrence and can sometimes be an accident, but often intentional. There is a huge business side to this sport and people can make an excellent living from it. There are some top horse breeders and sellers in Ireland and a large number of talented horses in the UK will be often Irish sport horses. Some of the top horses can sell for up to millions of euros. Horses are a huge interest of the British family. Princess Anne became a European champion and an Olympian and Prince Philip served as the head of the FEI 
for many years. Now, how did it all start for me? At age two, my parents bought me Jenny, my first pony. I came from a family that worshipped horses. Both my parents had all the knowledge they needed to put their daughter that just learned to walk on a pony. As I got older, we collected ponies and more ponies. At age four, I started competing in agricultural shows alongside my mother. From age four, I knew what I was going to be doing for a very long time. I woke up, went to school, came home and rode up to three ponies at age eight. Many might say that I was too competitive or not living a normal life, but it didn't matter because for me it was the joy of riding those ponies every day. At age 11, I got a piebald pony given to me and went to the Royal Dublin Horse Show. At this age, it was extremely competitive and some were surprised as piebald isn't a traditional showing pony. I jumped around the starter stakes in Simmons Court with the dream in mind and the pony on the wrong leg. But I had put in hours of training and on the 13th of August 2017, I had a red rosette in hand and a sash around my neck. I couldn't believe it. That year lit a fire, not necessarily to win, but to keep doing what I loved with my incredibly talented ponies. Everyone has an off year in sport, but I had two off years, back to back, and didn't have that same urge. It was time-consuming and stressful. I had some bad falls and was losing confidence, added to which was the pressure of going into secondary school. Everything changed when I met a coach that has been with me for five years now. She told me to never change a winning formula. So we thought, what was her formula? Instead of the young ponies, I got older ones, Not top of the class, just older. Then I started eventing and haven't stopped since. This year I competed in all the best venues in Ireland. Name a venue and I've been there. Since discovering eventing, it has been a burning dream to succeed with one of the country's top ponies that had previously been part of the Irish team for Europeans in 2019. I had the artillery and all I had to do was to get myself on that level. My coach told me that even the tight timeline of a year was doable. Since March 2021, I had not taken more than a day off every fortnight. Yes, the pony got a rest day, but I would ride out something else. I had many placings and was on course. It came to final trial in Kilquilkey Mallow, County Cork, or home venue. Dressage went smoothly, always safe, but never first. Cross-country day dawned, the pony's fourth day, her most reliable phase. I was to learn a very valuable and expensive lesson. I was overconfident and finished with a devastating 20 penalties. It was my dream over to go to the Europeans in Poland, but a clear cross country was a must. I was devastated for my parents, coaches and for the pony. I did not want to continue. I wanted to withdraw from show jumping the next day and sell all the horses and ponies. But I finished it and went clear inside the time. I glanced over to my mother and father who were happier at this moment than I think they would have been if I made the team because I finished it. I'd blamed the cross country day on the pony because she was part thoroughbred and very quick and hard to stop, but disappointment can make you do weird things. And even though not all of my dreams came true this year, most of them did, and it would not have been possible without my lion-hearted ponies, my parents and coaches, with their copious amounts of love and support, that same fire has been lit. Meanwhile, there is always next year. Thanks for that, Jill, and best of luck in the future with your competitions. And now we'll hear from Alison and Claire fill us in on fashion trends through the years and fast fashion based off Sheen. On this week's episode of Everything and Anything with SMC and Alison and Claire, we'll be talking about fashion trends making a comeback and the ups and downs of fast fashion. Fashion trends change rapidly through the years and they often come back into style, some of which people call ugly like Crocs and some of which people love like high-rise jeans. 
People's perception of these items change because of media, trends, influencers and much more. An example of trends coming back are Crocs. In my opinion, I think Crocs are a funky but practical shoe. I actually agree with you on that one. I also think Crocs are simultaneously the most loved and the most hated shoes of all time. Personally, I love them and I have a pair myself. You may not know, but they started out as boating shoes in 2001 and became well known for their comfort and indestructibility. But actually, did you know, as they're indestructible and they're very, very good quality, this means people only buy one pair which resulted them in having no loyal customers leading to their downfall in the mid and late 2000s. Alison, would you believe during summer 2021, Crocs have had a major boost in their sales, reaching record sales of 553 million in only three months? I actually do remember hearing that because there was someone called Questlove who wore a pair of gold metallic Crocs on the red carpet at the Academy Awards. Justin Bieber also came out with his own pair of Crocs, which he created in collaboration with them. I've also seen social media influencers promote Crocs on their social media platforms such as Olivia Neal and Flossie. This helped Crocs reach to their younger generations. Another trend coming back this year are low-rise jeans. These were all the craze in the early 2000s. However, in recent years, they were replaced by much higher-rise jeans, especially, as we all know, the Topshop Joni jeans. The comeback of low-rise jeans started with models like Bella Hadid, whose wardrobe is like a time travel machine back to the early 2000s. Did you see the Game of Thrones actress Sophie Turner wearing low-rise jeans, which pretty soon after led to the viral TikTok hashtag low-rise jeans, having currently over 68.5 million views? What are your opinions on them? I actually used to have a pair, but I gave them to a charity shop. They just weren't really for me. But I kind of see why people love them so much. Although the thought of buying new clothes because they are in trend, it's exciting, it's impulsive. Many fast fashion companies take advantage of this and try and recreate these trendy items for cheap, which makes them even more popular and it's fast money for the company. Claire, what exactly is fast fashion? It is used to describe clothing designs that move quickly from the catwalk to stores to take advantage of trends and customers that are willing to pay for these items, which are usually sourced in sweatshops really cheaply. The industry is incredibly harmful to the environment, with fashion being the second most polluting industry in the world. Even aside from the pollution caused by how the items are produced, the nature of fast fashion clothes, which they're meant to be thrown away after only a season of wearing them, creates a lot of unnecessary waste in the world. If you think that sounds bad, fast fashion is often made in sweatshops that use unsafe working conditions and child labour. UNICEF estimates that 168 million children between the ages of 5 and 17 are engaged in child labour in the fast fashion industry. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Did you know that the leading fast fashion company in the world is Sheen? I presume everyone's heard of them. If you don't know them, they're a Chinese fast fashion company and they came about in 2008. But recently they've gained popularity due to the pandemic. While some fast fashion places like H&M and Zara introduce new pieces by tracking trends and going through a three-week process to come up with new designs, Sheen is able to use real-time data to cut this process to five to seven days. They are then able to introduce new products that are on trend and get rid of products that do not sell as easily. To my amazement, this has allowed Sheen to make $10 billion in revenue in 2020. I like Sheen because of the cheap prices they sell their clothes at, because the materials they're made from do not decay and harm the environment, so they're less expensive. They also work with mid-sized workshops, not large industrial factories like people think. Maybe this could be the reason for Sheen's slow delivery service. I mean, I've ordered from Sheen before and it took three weeks for my parcel to arrive. That's ridiculous. On the topic of Sheen, have you heard about their scandal over the summer? Yeah, I've seen them all over social media recently for not great reasons. I mean, it's shocking for such a well-known brand. So in case anyone listening doesn't know what went on, in just a single week, Sheen released two apologies for selling offensive items. On July 9th, 2020, a necklace of an offensive symbol, the swastika, was posted on their site. 
The necklace was listed as a metal pendant necklace and was being sold for $2.50. Within hours because of Sheen's popularity, screenshots of the item were uploaded to all platforms of social media. The next day, Sheen apologised for this over social media, but the post went on to explain that the necklace was a Boris swastika design, which is apparently different from a Nazi swastika. I mean, to me and to everyone else, it shows that Sheen isn't very ethical and they don't take the consequences of their actions into consideration. Alison, I'm looking for more ethical places to buy clothes that are good to their workers as well. Can you recommend anywhere? Yes, I actually have a few places I like. So I like to shop at Levi's, Polo Ralph Lauren, Columbia and Athleta. And another tip that I have is if you want to source sustainable clothing is to go to your local charity shops. There are so many over Cork, Dublin and everywhere else in Ireland. Plus, shopping at charity shops is much better for the environment. Before we go, I'm sure our listeners would love to hear about our favourite products at the moment. What's yours? My favourite product at the moment would probably be my Ugg boots. They're so comfortable and perfect for this weather. I have to agree with you on that one. My Uggs are definitely my favourite as well. That's all the time we have for now. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned till next time. Bye. If you're thinking about starting to drink coffee or already drink coffee, you should consider having a latte at the three times voted best coffee in Cork, Cork Coffee Roasters. Our locations are 2 Bridge Street, 2 French Church Street and 16 Anglesey Street. And guess our next location coming soon. And now we have Ava who is joined in the studio by a very special guest and producer behind this podcast, former radio broadcaster George Huck, who's here to tell us all about his life from radio to rugby. Hello, this is Ava Gowan and welcome to SMC Podcast. My guest today on How'd You Get That Job is retired radio and television broadcaster George Huck. Hello, George, and thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Eva. You started broadcasting at age 55 when most people are thinking of retiring. How did that happen? Well, it's really important talking to somebody who's at school and has a career guidance teacher and everything. I didn't have a career guidance teacher. I went into the wrong job. My mother thought I should be accountant. I did accountancy and I didn't like it. Then I formed my own business and I was very bad at that. And I eventually discovered by sheer fluke when I was 55, I got a break from RTE on rugby. And, and it was just luck. But it's what I always should have been doing, but nobody directed me in the right way. So what was your first job and what age did you get it? Although I went to Presentation College in Cork, my parents were poor and, and my mother hadn't any more money left. So we, I couldn't go to university. So I got a job with an insurance company in Dublin, then went to London with the same insurance company and saved up. And then I came back to college in Dublin when I was 21. So I was a mature student, really. Did you enjoy school? I loved school. I must say, I loved school. I mean, I wasn't dramatically clever or I wasn't a great rugby player or any of those kind of things, but I loved that. It was a great place to be. Remember, we're talking about 70 years ago. I left press in 1959. It was a great place. Very good. Did you always know what you wanted to be or did you change your mind throughout your life? I changed my, my mind and my life and my reputation on a regular basis. As I say, I was in insurance and I studied accountancy. Then I ran my own business and I hated every minute of it. I mean, 
I I never had a happy day working because I knew I hated it. And it was only that day when I first went on television. I went on television before radio and I suddenly realised, you know, this is it. This is what I was born to do. And I had 20 unbelievably happy years. Did you find it hard constantly changing jobs? It wasn't so much hard. It was a dreadful lack of self-esteem, you know, because I failed in everything, you must remember. You know, if, you, if you're doing something you hate, then you're not going to be very good at it. So I was never any good at anything I did in a work sense. My self-esteem would hit the floor, you know. So mm-hmm. I spent most of my life lacking utterly in self-confidence. People might be surprised at that, you know, the George Hook they know now. But I, I thought I'm no good, I'm a failure, you know, all those sort of things. I let my parents down, like when you think what my mother did to mm-hmm. get me to press, you know, from a place where nobody went to fee-paying school. And I let her down. I let everybody down. I spent my entire life letting people down. That must have been really hard. Tell us what is involved in working in broadcasting and would you recommend it to anyone? Well, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. Neither would I recommend it to everybody. Mm -hmm. First of all, broadcasting, if you take broadcasting as radio and television and um, now with what we're doing, podcasting and so on, but they're all linked. They're all about speech Mm -hmm. and voice. Not everybody can do it. But the great point about it is, unlike being a doctor or a dentist or a lawyer, you don't really have to train for it. (laughs) Either you can do it or you can't. On the other hand, the problem with recommending it to somebody is the pay structure is manifestly unfair. So the people on the screen Mm -hmm. or the people on, on the radio get paid a lot of money And then all the people who make it happen, who are a multiple of maybe a hundred, you know, if there are if there are five broadcasters, there might be a hundred people supporting that and they get paid very badly. So would I recommend to somebody who's studying now for journalism and radio, would they go into it? I'd say no. It doesn't have a clearly defined career path Mm -hmm. and so on. And I'd say no, be very careful. And because if you look at the people then in broadcasting, okay, Ryan Tuberty knew he was a broadcaster when he was in nappies, but like most people just sort of fell into broadcasting in a way because they could speak. And and all these people who've studied and got master's degrees and everything but can't speak. And that's why what we're doing here is so important. Speech is so important. Thank you. All of us here in TY are wondering about our future. What advice would you give to us about getting a better job? And the first thing is don't listen to your mother or indeed your father for that matter because your parents care about you and your parents worry about you and your parents want you to do something that's nice and safe and everything else. That's very understandable. Whereas you might want to do something that isn't safe, you know, like be a can-can dancer or play the piano in a dingy pub or whatever. The first thing is you do what you want to do. Go with your gut. Absolutely. And, and the point system is nonsense, but it's the only system we have, so we've got to do it. But if you get 525 points, does that mean, oh, I must do medicine? I got 525. Whereas what you might really want to do might be remedial teaching, Mm -hmm. which only needs 200 points, say. 
and you've got 525. If your gut says I want to do the 200-point career, then do it. There you have it, folks. Thank you so much for listening. This is Ava Gowan, and I hope you will join me again soon. Thank you, George. Thanks very much, Ava. Good to be here. Thanks for that, Ava, and thanks, George, for joining us in studio today. Last but not least, we will now hear from Elva speaking about a very important topic, the RNLI. Hello, everyone. My name is Elva Blake, and I will be talking to you about the importance of the RNLI lifeboats. Did you know that an average of 115 people drown in open water every year in Ireland? The majority of these occur at inland water sites. And would you believe that men make up 79% of deaths in Irish waters? People think this is because men are more likely to take part in swimming and water sports under the influence of drink and drugs. The drowning rate also increases hugely for men between the ages of 15 and 24, when men are almost six times more likely to drown than women. As well as that, they are more likely not to wear a life jacket. 30 children under the age of 14 drowned in Ireland over the past 10 years. Drownings usually happen silently and quickly. Alcohol is a factor in one third of drownings. As you can see, drowning is a huge killer. The World Health Organization estimates that almost 236,000 people lost their lives to drowning worldwide in 2019. Just over half of these deaths were people under the age of 30. Drowning is the sixth leading cause of death worldwide for children between the ages of 5 and 14. Over 90% of drownings occur in low- and middle-income countries, mostly due to the lack of swimming lessons. But what is drowning? Well, drowning is when the lungs fill up with water and a person can't get enough oxygen to stay conscious. Once a person goes unconscious, they have very little time before they can't be resuscitated with CPR. Even though there were several countrywide lockdowns, approximately 76 people drowned in 2020. However, this is an improvement from 2007. In 2007, a total of 168 people drowned in Ireland. The main reason for this improvement is down to the work of lifeguards and the RNLI lifeboats. For example, in the year 2020, lifeguards rescued 468 people, gave first aid to 3,450 people, located 251 lost children, gave advice to 107,849 people, prevented 20,050 accidents and helped in 6,606 other incidents. And this was all in the middle of countrywide lockdowns. This just goes to show how much we need lifeguards and the RNLI lifeboats. But what is the RNLI? RNLI stands for Royal National Lifeboat Institution. It is a charity-based organisation that has 238 lifeboat stations across the UK and Ireland, and they provide a 24-hour rescue service. RNLI crews and lifeguards have saved over 124,700 people since 1824. They also spend time educating people on water safety. The RNLI currently has a fleet of 431 lifeboats. This is just as well since they get an average of 24 call-outs a day. All RNLI crews are made up of volunteers. These people are amazing as they are willing to volunteer to save people's lives and drop everything at a second's notice. And only 1 in 10 of these people actually work with the sea and other open water sites professionally. This means that everyone has to be trained at a very high standard. They train every week, both onshore and offshore. The training focuses a lot on teamwork, the safe operation of lifeboats, search and rescue, navigation, radar training, 
radio communications and casualty care. All of these things are very important to how the lifeboats are operated. They also practice rescue scenarios with other emergency services, such as the Coast Guard and Fire Department. All crew members must also keep a certain level of fitness. Every trainee crew member has to learn the roles and responsibilities of the lifeboat station, how to use and look after equipment and the layout of the station's lifeboat. After six months of regular training, trainees may enrol in the trainee crew course at the RNLI College in Poole, Dorset. After another 12 months probationary period and various tests, the trainees become fully-fledged crew members. But even though they are no longer trainees, all crew members have to keep up training and keep up their skills. There are roughly 20 RNLI stations across Ireland. The closest ones to our school in the heart of Cork City would be Crosshaven and Ballycotton. Both of these stations are on the coast, but there are also a few stations at inland water sites such as the station at Loch Derg on the border between Tipperary, Clare and Galway. The RNLI really rely on volunteers to keep the organisation going, but there are never too many people who want to save others and help their communities. There are a few ways you can volunteer with the RNLI, such as volunteering in the lifeboat station itself or hosting fundraising events. They also rely on donations to keep their life-saving equipment in good condition. Every year, the RNLI sells Christmas cards to help raise money for the lifeboats. If you would like to get involved with your local RNLI station or with the organisation in general, Either visit your station or visit ornli.org to see what you can do to help this important organisation. The ORNLI are also involved in a television programme called Saving Lives at Sea. This is a documentary series which focuses on various ORNLI lifeboat stations across the UK and Ireland. It shows some of the most newsworthy rescues performed by the ORNLI crews. This series really shows the bravery of these volunteers, who are quite often risking their lives to save others. But what I think is most touching is that they are risking their lives for people they usually don't know and then they don't want any praise. They don't want to be treated like heroes. But the way I see it anyway, they are heroes. They are willing to give up their free time purely to help others. I think this is what makes a hero. And that is why I think everyone should respect all the RNLI crew members. They are heroes. Thanks, Elva. For more information, visit the RNLI online. That wraps up the very first episode of Anything and Everything by my co-presenters and classmates of Sculvera. Big thank you to Grant Thornton and Tony Martin, co-founder of Viv Powered, for your generous sponsorship towards the podcast. A special thank you to our teacher, Miss Fitzharris, and our producer, George Hook, for making this happen. And most importantly, thank you for listening. I've been your host, Susie, and stay tuned for the next episode of Anything and Everything by SMC.